Well, good morning, Disciples Church. Good to see you this morning. Uh, guests, welcome. Glad to have you here with us today, this uh, year of 2019, our second week of Advent. Thankful for what God is doing. Uh, our church is in its 130th year of gospel ministry here in Bakersfield. We're thankful to be in this new location for the last year and a half, and uh, God is doing a marvelous thing in and through his people. And it's our joy to testify the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make disciples unto the nations. Uh, we very much value and cherish the expository preaching of God's word. I'm in the middle of preaching through the book of Ephesians right now, uh, and we are taking a break. We just concluded chapter one, and we'll be starting up chapter two following the Advent season, the first of January. Uh, these four weeks of December and on Christmas Eve, we're taking this special time of the year to focus on the advent of Christ and um, very much enjoy this time. This, this year in particular, we're focusing on the aspect of Jesus as the light of the world. And it's been a joy to be preparing to be in God's word to, to preach. I pray that you're uh, blessed by our time together. Will you grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John? Uh, we focused on the first few verses of this Gospel last week. If you missed any of that, you can catch the podcast. Also, if you're planning to move forward with us, if you missed the first parts of Ephesians, you can also spend some time and at home with your Bible open to, to see how that foundation was laid. Ephesians chapter 1, such a mighty part of Holy Scripture. It's been a real joy to be in God's Word. Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. This is truly good news, and I pray it is good news for your soul this morning and forevermore. This time of year, every December, we gather to light candles to worship the living God and thank Him for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but specifically the birth of Christ, the, the incarnation of Christ, the coming of the Messiah his arrival to come and save his holy people. Uh, this time of year, we call this Advent. That word Advent means the arrival. The arrival. At Christmas, we celebrate the arrival of the promised Redeemer, the Messiah. He is the one, God said, would be born of a virgin, would become the atoning sacrifice for God's chosen people so that they could be forgiven of their sin, brought into a restored relationship with God forevermore. Hear Jesus' words again. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This Christmas we're celebrating and studying this powerful application of Jesus as the light of the world and the different layers that are within. Last week we really focused on how Jesus is the light of life. That life itself is found in the eternal triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That physical life, creation itself, conscience life, it, it all comes from God. He is the life giver. This is what John is emphasizing in his opening words of the passage we're going to study today in John chapter 1, verse 9 through 14. I want to read the entire passage we'll look at this morning together, and then we'll dive into verse 9. John 1, 9 through 14 says this, The true light, 
which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time that you've ordained for us to gather in this place. Seek your face, Lord. Song, worship, prayer, and study of your holy word. We thank you for your perseverance of, of, of your word. That It is so precious to us, Lord, to know you, to be corrected in our fleshly ways of thinking, our, our man-made traditions, our sinful fleshly longings, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would move to convict and mold and shape and reorient our thinking as you have brought it according to your word. Lord, that we would be humble this morning, we would be pliable, that, that it would be our hope and desire to not leave this place the way we came in, but that you would love us enough to wreck us, to, 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 to convict and to, and to take us to a new place, a new, a new place in our maturity. And for some who maybe enter these doors dead in sin, Lord of their own lives, to new life in Christ, faith in Jesus, new, new beginning as a child of God. Lord, you are able, more than able. The living God is present. We don't have to do something to, to convince you to come. No, you are here. You are more present than we know how to give you honor Lord, I pray that we would be here, that our minds would be um, focused on, on your word, that, that the distractions of this season and the, and the to-do list would be put away, that we could do business with you, the living God, that you would shape us and mold us and send us from this place for your holy purposes for this day, and if you will it, tomorrow and beyond. We love you. We are blessed to be here, thankful, Lord, for what you're doing in and through us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Church, look with me at John 1, verse 9. John says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. When John says the true light gives light to everyone, he's talking about the light that is physical life, the general illumination God puts into everything he creates. This was much of our focus last week in the opening verses of John's Gospel. Every person who is born with, is born with a conscience to know what is morally right and wrong, Scripture tells us. This is because God has written His moral law on our hearts. Every person is also given view of God through the evidence and the power of creation. Therefore, every person who is given life, Scripture said, is, is without excuse for why they do not honor God or, or, or live for God. Give Him the praise He's due. Christ is the true light that is life. In contrast to all the false lights in the world constantly presenting themselves before us, 
Christ, who is the light of life, not only created, not only spoke the word of truth, but was coming to do something very specific. God the Father promised this from the beginning, from the fall of man, that a Redeemer would come. As Jesus comes as the light of the world, as Jesus comes to take on flesh, He comes to do something very specific, something that only God the Son could do to bring a different kind of light. Jesus is the true light that all the the dim and shaded lights of of generations past, of the old covenant, the, the types and the shadows that pointed to the Messiah Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. This is what John's getting at here in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone in that life-giving general sense, was coming into the world to do something special. So as we move from verse 9 to 10, understand what has been global about Christ as the Word, as life, as light, is about to become very personal. The true light was coming into the world. John 1, verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. And again, as we build on what's already been said in the early part of this chapter, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. We see that this is in reference to Jesus, God the Son, And yet John says the world did not know him. We have to understand that this is not a knowing in the head or knowing about God, but knowing him personally, having relationship with God. They did not know him in that way because of our sin. Last week I was clear to share that all mankind knows about God, even those who are arrogant enough to proclaim that God doesn't exist, Scripture says otherwise. There's really no such thing as an atheist, except for one who chooses to proclaim they don't believe in God. How do we know that? Scripture says so. Romans chapter 1, 19-21, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So there's a general illumination of light, of mankind, of conscience to know the moral law of God, as Scripture proclaims it's written on our heart. There's also a general knowing about God as He's made Himself known in creation. That mankind is without excuse. This is why the, the, the man or woman on the farthest parts of the planet in the deepest jungle is still held accountable before a holy God in their sin. So they know about him in the head, but they don't know him personally. Their their souls are are darkened. There's a, 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 a lack of spiritual enlightenment to know God, who is life. 
fallen mankind knows that God exists, for he has clearly revealed himself in creation, and they have perceived him, and are without excuse, for they do not honor him. They're separated from him because they sin, and because of their sin they do not know him personally. To say it clearly, our sin separates us from knowing God personally. It's how he protects his holiness and has right judgment and justice on those of us in sin. This is John's emphasis here in verse 10. He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. John will later emphasize this again in chapter 3, verse 19 of John's Gospel, saying the light has come into the world And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. I want us to see that these clarities John is giving us are setting the table for why we need the special illumination of Jesus as the light of the world. The light he comes to bring for those whom he would save. The personal work of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Because without his arrival, without his atoning work on the cross on behalf of undeserving sinners, we would never know God personally. We would be guilty before him and righteously deserving of his wrath. Oh, how desperate we are for the arrival of the light of the world to bring his special illumination on those whom he would save. Look at verse 11 with me. He came to his own And his own people did not receive him. This is another layer of clarity John's bringing. In verse 10, he was in the world, and now he's come to his own. When it says, he came to his own, this is reference to the Israelites, God's chosen people in his old covenant. John's point is this. It is one thing for the pagan world to have unbelief, in God. It's another thing, it's another layer of sinful rejection for the Israelites to have unbelief. The blessings that God put out, the clarity, the ways His patience and His grace would work throughout generations on the Israelite people. Recognize this is the same unbelief that the Jewish people would have to reject Jesus as the Messiah, to go so far to cast Him out and have Him killed on a criminal's cross. even though he's the one they've been waiting for. Still to this day, the gross error of the Jewish faith to deny the one true Messiah, Jesus Christ. John's point is this. See the need for the arrival of the light that is Christ to bring salvation, to bring new life, to bring spiritual illumination And so he turns the corner in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Salvation comes to the sinner through receiving Christ. That is, in clarity, according to Scripture, believing in his name. Now, understand something very critical here. This is not just believing about him. 
but believing in, or what the Greek word there is, is S, it's into, believing into Jesus. Last night, for you college football fans, a well-intentioned young man competed in the halftime um, show competition sponsored by Dr. Pepper in the Big Ten National Championship for a $100,000 college scholarship prize, a really legit prize, right? hundred grand towards your college tuition is a big help. After he won the money by throwing footballs into a large can of Dr. Pepper, um, he was presented with the check. And it was really interesting to watch this thing because it was very scripted. You, you could tell they even practiced this. The moment the whistle blew, he ran to another spot as they were probably were instructed for the winner to receive the check. Why? Because the clock is running, right? We're talking big dollars at halftime. And so I say all that to say he, he knows he has a very limited moment to respond to his winning. He's won 100 grand towards his tuition. And what does he do? He takes the moment to say, all praise and glory be to God. My heart sung. And it was a really short little moment. And then he went on to say, to call out all who, who could hear him, to believe in God. And then he left it there. And I couldn't help but recognize and appreciate his God-centered good intentions for this moment on this national stage, by which God was praised, hallelujah, whereby millions of people around the country are watching. But his request for people to believe in God, one could argue, is not enough. Why? Well, first of all, there are a lot of people who believe in something they call God, who is not God at all, but man-made, or based in some form of false religion that commonly plagues mankind all around. Second, if it is the one true God who they are believing in, belief that God is real and who he claims to be, who he claims to be, is not enough. Belief that God is real and who he claims to be is not saving faith. Why? Because that's the same belief the demons have. Do you realize in Scripture the demons have great theology about God? The, the, the terms and titles they use to describe Jesus as God is better than many others that Jesus would interact with along the road. And yet they're damned forever. Why? Because belief about God, or in general, I believe in God, is not saving faith. It's, it's why the Greek word s or into is so critical to see through our English translation here. That what we're called to do is believe into him. Believe into Jesus the only way in truth and life, the only way to the Father, through Jesus. We must believe into Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Believing into Jesus means you don't just believe about Him, but remain the Lord of your own life. Sadly, Scripture speaks of often many who have what's called superficial faith because they claim to have had a religious moment or upbringing by which they hang their hat on a prayer they said or an aisle they walked, and yet they're still the Lord of their own lives. They're hanging their hat on essentially a superstitious moment by which they repeated a prayer, 
and yet they have not believed into Christ. The way Scripture speaks about this is that when we are saved, we really die to ourselves and are made alive in Christ. That God gives us a, a new heart to see and savor the gospel. And what we do is we repent of our sin and trust our lives to Jesus. This is the belief into Him. I no longer look to myself to make my own way to self-forms of salvation or being good enough. I trust in Jesus alone. He not only is my Savior, but He is my Lord. Meaning, I have died, and as Scripture says, been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live for Him. We belong to Jesus. The old man dies, new birth, and belief into Him. Jesus is Lord. I live for Him. I long for His Word. I repent of sin. I mature in the faith. I belong to the church in a good, right, accountable way. My life is forever changed. The way I do marriage, the way I parent my kids, it all has a new economy. It doesn't belong to the old man anymore. It belongs to the new, saved child of God. This is an important clarity. And this is an important emphasis that John is bringing in these verses. But before we look at that, let me just ask you, have you believed into Jesus for salvation? Have you trusted your life to him? Your Christianity isn't, I found a way to do my Christian life, kind of put in my pocket, I have some things I do that are Christian, but I essentially live my life the way I want to, order my days and my priorities, the way I decide to spend my money, the way I decide to parent my kids. No, no, no. Have you died to self that it all belongs to him? And according to his scripture, you serve and live for him. Your days, your priorities, where Jesus is Lord and you are his joyful servant. Where your life and purpose is to make much of his great name in all you do. Look with me at how God graciously awakens the dead heart the dead and lost soul that needs reviving to have saving faith. John chapter 1, I'll read 12 and 13 together. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who he gave the right to become children of God. These are people who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The born there is not physical birth. It's talking about spiritual birth. The new birth they have. Our physical birth is that general illumination of, of the work of God as the light of the world. This is talking about spiritual birth now. That very specific and special illumination of Christ. The work of God in the life of His people that He would cause to have saving faith, to have new birth. It's important to see who causes us to be born again. God does. Just like you didn't take credit for your own physical birth, right? You didn't climb out of the womb and say, hey, I'm glad I could help out. Glad to be here. We don't do that. No, no, why? Because we're the recipient of physical birth, just like we're the recipient of new birth, of spiritual birth. All glory be to God. I constantly am counseling those I get to preach in our congregation that we would talk less about the day that we chose Jesus or accepted Jesus. That kind of points to what I did. And instead, talk about the day that God saved you. 
This is the day that God gave me saving faith. Help me to see my sin and savor the gospel, to repent and believe in him. All glory be to God. The scripture is clear that we'll have nothing to boast in. Salvation belongs to the Lord. All glory be to God. Romans 9, 6-8, Paul brings clarity. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Paul is clarifying here that not all of ethnic Israel belong to God's elect. That the purpose of the Old Covenant serves its purpose. And while among God's elect there are many from the ethnic people of Israel, it is the children of the promise who are saved. Again, hear John's words here in John 1, 12-13. But all, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let me ask it this way as a way to reflect on what John's emphasizing. Who receives Jesus? Who believes in Jesus' name? Who does God give the right to become children of God? Those who are born of God. Who He gives new birth to take the dead and depraved soul. And as it says in the Old Testament, to, to give it new life. The work of regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And now with new eyes, with unveiled eyes and unstopped ears, I see and savor the gospel to repent and believe in Jesus. All glory be to God. This is good news. It's good news, church. Because he not, Jesus not only is the light of the world and that he gives physical life, but he came into the world, a world full of sinful people who unanimously have rejected him, who deserve his wrath because of sin. And in his grace, he brings the light of the world to illuminate in a special way new life for his people a worldwide people, a people of Scripture says is from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is good news. This is the good news of all good news. The arrival of the light, the Messiah, the arrival of God the Son who took on flesh. All this leads up to John's formal and clear announcement of the incarnation of Jesus, that He's come. The arrival of the Messiah, Jesus, is here and so look with me at one of the most beautiful pronouncements ever penned to Scripture, penned to paper, church. John chapter 1, verse 14 begins with these words. And the Word became flesh. If you remember our study last week, John's reference to the Word is Jesus. The Word is Jesus. The eternal and all-powerful, majestic and glorious God the Son humbles Himself to take on human form and a human nature. This is the doctrine of the Incarnation. It is the good news that the invisible became visible. The testimony of the advent, the arrival of the light of the world. God the Son putting on flesh. Now please understand clearly, 
that the incarnation of Jesus does not mean that God the Son dwelt in a man, but that God the Son became man. He became what he was not previously, though he never ceased to be all that he was before. This is some higher doctrine that's really critical that we understand clearly and rightly. The babe in the major is conceived of the Holy Spirit, born in Bethlehem, and named Emmanuel, God with us. The one true God came near to make his general illumination a very special illumination for his chosen people worldwide. See and savor this with me this morning, church. Jesus, who is eternally and fully God, humbly chose to put on flesh and a human nature. The fact that Jesus is fully God and became fully man is so important for our salvation and his redemptive work as the Messiah because he had to be like us in every way to be our representative and yet had to be without sin to be the only one worthy to make atonement for our sins so we could have a renewed and right standing with the holy God. Hebrews chapter 2, 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to be made like us. This is the incarnation. That root word in, in incarnation is carne. It's the Latin word for meat. He put on meat. He put on flesh. Let's dig a little deeper into the important aspects of the incarnation. The word became flesh. This means Jesus, born as a baby, normal looking child, and young man, and grown man, he had a mother. He grew up. He had to learn to walk and read and write. Luke 2 42 says he grew in favor and stature and wisdom with men and God. He had friends. He was betrayed. We see him in Scripture as being happy, as being sad. These are things, now hear me clearly, that is human nature fully experienced. Another important clarity of the incarnation of Christ is that we don't say or believe things about Jesus that are not true of his divine nature. One of those being that the divine nature does not change. God is an unchanging God. He does not experience emotion. These are things we've studied as of late in a recent regional conference that we helped host. We're bringing in some of the best speakers from around the world to help us grow in these biblical, historic truths of the Christian faith. And um, that God is without passions. The impassibility of God is an important one that we understand, especially as it relates to Christ and the uniqueness of him being fully God and fully man. The key is to understand that he added to his divine nature a human nature. The union of the two natures in the person of Christ is one of the great mysteries of our faith. But while there are layers that are beyond us, it is imperative that we uphold what the Word says about these things to the degree that God's ordained that we know them. 1 Timothy 3.16 Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, 
vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The the longest standing, best historic confessions of the Christian faith uphold these truths. It's only modern movements of modern tradition that churches and pastors and believers have moved away from these historic things. The historic position, Jesus is one person with two natures, one fully human, one fully divine, perfectly coexistent in the person of Jesus Christ. We call this, the big fancy word, the hypostatic union. Augustine says it this way, Christ added to himself which he was not. He did not lose what he was. His his deity, though veiled, was never laid aside. His humanity, though sinless, was real humanity. He was and is the God-man. And yet the divine and the human in him were never confounded. The fact that Jesus who is eternally God the Son, puts on flesh, is astounding. Emmanuel, God with us. The Word became flesh. Praise God for the incarnation. For for the perfect plan of God, set forth before time, promised in the beginning of the fall of mankind, for the promised Redeemer, was executed for our good and for His eternal glory. Church, listen again. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about that. What what God the Son did for us. Let, Let it boggle your mind this morning. Let it capture your soul. Let it inspire your your, your testimony and the, the way you live your life. Consider with me the beauty of the fact that God the Son humbled Himself to dwell among us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwell there in the Greek is understood uh, to be defined as to tent or to encamp. To occupy or reside. It's essentially the same principle that God applied when He was in the tabernacle in the Old Covenant. It, this d- word dwell or dwelt, you could, you could say is the word tabernacle. It means he pitched his tent on earth. And so while there was the old form in the tabernacle that pointed ultimately to Jesus himself, we see God the Son take on flesh and tabernacle among mankind for the 33 or so years he lived his life on earth. This idea of him as the tabernacle, of him dwelling among us, is very significant because it helps fulfill all the types and antitypes of the old covenant that point to the fulfillment of who Jesus is. The, the temporary appointment of and the and the transientness of the tabernacle in the old covenant was that it would move here and about. And as we consider Jesus' life, it's the same. He puts on flesh, and like the type, he he never was much very long in one place. 
moving here and about. His divine appointment to bring grace, forgiveness, and love to his people. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place. It was there in the midst of Israel's camp that God, who is spirit, took up residence among the people. There, between the cherubim, on the mercy seat, he made his throne, the Holy of Holies, to manifest his presence by means of his Shekinah glory. And during the 33 years of Jesus' life, he would tabernacle among men. God had his dwelling place in this way, in the flesh of Jesus. Jesus is the antitype fulfillment. All of that points to him. And just as the Shekinah dwelt between the two cherubim in the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of God is shown between Moses and Elijah. And it's declared, we behold his glory. This is the language of the tabernacle. This is the the fulfillment of God's purpose in all these things. Oh God, you are so good to fulfill your promises and your plan. The arrival of Christ, church, means so much to all of this to come to its full fruition as God ordained it to be. The work that God has done, the patience He's had through the generations of mankind, all that pointing to Jesus, physical life, death, resurrection. See and savor with me the wonder and the grace of God to accommodate us in this way. To come to us, to draw near, to enter into our context so that He could take our place for what we deserved. So we could be made new, forgiven, restored to know God personally, now and forever. Amen? This is the power of the arrival of the light of the world to all of us who are saved and to those who still will be. This is why this time of year is so meaningful to us. The arrival of God the Son, the incarnation of the Lord to take on flesh, the accommodation to tabernacle among us, so that he could bring special illumination that we are desperate for to have new life. This is the light we celebrate at Christmas time, church. All glory be to God. Let me ask you this morning, in an attempt to bring some real personal application, does this truth capture you, captivate you? Do you truly Behold it. I use that word because that's the word John uses next in the next part of the verse, verse 14. Look at it with me. He says, We have seen his glory. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The phrase we have seen here in the English doesn't do it, I don't think, enough justice. It's the word beheld. We have beheld His glory. To behold something is to look closely, to look intently at it. There's a lot of things we just see in life and keep going. It's a different thing to slow down and to behold something. We have beheld His glory. 
I want us to grasp the fullness this morning of the difference between just seeing something and really beholding something. Why? Because I think at Christmas time we can be really guilty of doing one and not the other. There's a lot to see at Christmas, is there not? Don't you find yourself looking around more than normal? A lot of times through the rest of the year, we'll drive through the streets of Bakersfield and not really care too much to look intently at houses or yards or shopping centers or go walk about. But we do that at Christmas time because there's something special to see and maybe even to behold. What are the things you stop to really behold? The, the practice of beholding is lost on us, though. It's something that is harder and harder for us to do in this generation, in this time of life for mankind. Why? Because we are such a fast-paced society. We, we are a have-it-now kind of people. I mean, the Internet doesn't move like this, and we get frustrated. Some of you are old enough to remember what that dial-up sound made. And it would take so long to produce an image. Look, think about how far we've come. To, to, to call someone and have to leave a message on their recorder, and they might not hear it for the rest of the day or the next day to call you back. Now we're utterly offended if we don't hear back from someone in 10 minutes. You didn't reply to my text right now. I mean, we're a have-it-now culture, right? Uh, fast, we're fast-paced. We have fast travel. Uh, we have fast food. How often do we need fast food so we can keep up with the rest of the pace of the day? There, there's no time to slow down and to, to shop and to cook and to sit around the table. Fast download speeds. We are a have-it-now and move-on kind of culture. I mean... As I prayed and thought about this, I was just thinking about how, how much we're plagued by this thing. The modern phone that most of us carry, the, um, the launch of the iPhone changed us as mankind. I mean, worldwide, some of the poorest places in the world have these. And what's interesting about it is it, it causes us to never slow to really behold anything. Um, why? Because I mean, people don't even walk down the street with their eyes up anymore. Right? Because there's something to keep them busy, to keep coming at them. So, so we don't look around and behold. How often do you find yourself, even at home, constantly plugged in? Uh, it, did you ever go through that phase where you're frustrated that your jammies, or for me, my basketball shorts I like to wear to bed, don't have pockets? Why was that frustrating? Because I couldn't hold this thing with me. So I had no place to put it. But, but I would actually contend maybe that's the best time of day. Because unless you're going to constantly be holding it, it causes you to put it down and behold your family or behold the Word of God to be still and know that He is God. It, I cryptically tried to tell first hour. The room was very full and I don't know if it just missed him, but there are places that we go throughout our day that we once just had to be still and think or maybe pray. But now we, in that place, stay very busy because we take it with us. Don't, don't say you don't. I know you do. 
And I think you know what I'm talking about. It goes everywhere with us. It keeps us busy. It keeps us moving. It keeps us constantly having to have the engine fed. But we need to be still and behold, especially to behold the glory of God that in Christ we have, church. Oh, I pray that this would be the transformation that comes, the practical application. But again, I ask you this Christmas, what are you beholding lately? What are you making time to look intently at to turn everything else off so you can just be still? Often this time of year, what that is is holiday movies. Not to say that those are bad necessarily, but think about the time commitment you make to watch one or a couple the amount of beholding that happens to be devoted to the screen for that amount of time. Or maybe the amount of time you're logging lately with your online shopping, the making of the list, the making of your list to share with others, or the hunting for the best deal. And so you don't just go to that website once, you go back there about eight times throughout the week because you're waiting for the deal, the special. And so we're dedicating a lot of time to these things. Or maybe sinfully, what are you beholding by looking at content that you have no business to focus in on and take in at that level? Slow to consider with me the one for whom this entire season is for. Do you realize all of Christmas is a big birthday party that's focused on one person? It's a party for one. And yet how You would think that that would cause us to really slow and behold the one, and yet we're so busy with all the other pieces, there's very little of that that we ever do. And we have seen or beheld his glory, John says. Glory is of the only Son from the Father Church. We must climb into the incarnation this morning and be boggled and, 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 and wrecked and, and, and find the wonder in the beauty of God who became flesh, that we would behold His glory, that we'd be born again to have saving faith, to know Him and enjoy Him like we do. Consider the game-changing reality, the incarnation of Jesus is, that we can behold His glory uh, first, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. That those who are born again in Christ were, are, are the veil in our sin that separates us from God has been removed. We've been unveiled. and Now we behold His glory and And there's a sanctification that's happening, a maturing that's happening as we mature in faith and worship and testimony for God. This is good news. Because before Christ and the special illumination He brings, the salvation, the atonement He brings, the, the Shekinah glory only resided in the Holy of Holies. Therefore, to some degree, it was veiled and hidden. But now we behold the divine glory has put forth through Christ the Son. The great theologian, historic theologian A.W. Pink says it this way, the glories of our Lord are infinite. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. No subject ought to be dearer to the heart of a believer. 
This is his essential glory, his divine perfections. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. This is glory that only belongs to the living God. And again, I ask you this morning, whose glory are you beholding? Who is worthy more than Jesus to behold? No one, nothing. Church, behold God who took on flesh the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that we would not forsake the opportunity to behold His glory and to testify of it to a watching world. To let it shape how we do our days, how we prioritize what we do, how we go about it. May the, the fleeting lights of Christmas time that are propped up for a moment and then stored away in the boxes, may they not be the best part of Christmas, all the stuff around the one we celebrate, but may they help us point to the one we celebrate. That as you see all the lights, it draws you to the one who is the light, to worship him and to enjoy him and behold him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The finishing part of this verse in verse 14 says that he's full of grace and truth. The very arrival of the Messiah is, is, of the, Messiah is the arrival of grace and truth. The, the Word, Jesus, is the truth of God. The work of Jesus, the Messiah, is to bring redemption by means of grace, a gift that's undeserved for an undeserving people. In Jesus, we can see the glory of God. I want you to take it in this morning. The glory of God revealed in Jesus does not consume us in our sin. Instead, it is full of grace and truth. Think about that with me for a moment. The glory of God in Christ is His gracious disposition to us without compromising His truthfulness. Consider grace and truth and why they're both so important. If Jesus came only in truth, we would be consumed by His holy judgment because of our sin. Praise God, He comes full of grace and truth. The glory of the Son is full of graciousness towards us sinners without compromising God's truth because His justice is met. When Christ died, God was true to His holy self because sin was punished. And when Christ died, God was gracious to us because Christ bore the punishment, not us. The Word became flesh means for us that the glory of God has been revealed in history as never before, namely in the fullness of grace and in the fullness of truth that shines most brightly in the death of Jesus for sinners. Hear the passage one more time before we conclude. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you're here today, and you honestly 
see that you've really only believed about God, but have not died to self to trust your life to Jesus, to believe into Christ, that you belong to him in every way. I pray it's God's will to give you eyes to see and ears to hear that you would confess your sin and trust your life to Jesus and be saved. And for you, the church, who are saved, that we would behold the beauty of the incarnation, the humble, gracious work of God the Son to put on flesh, to dwell among us, and behold the glory that is God. All that he is due, all that he is worthy of the beauty of the gospel that's seen in this truth, the light of the world. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time together in your holy word. Our hearts will be softened to the exposition of the word, that the, the clarity of the word would move over us, would, would, would rattle us, would shake us, would mobilize us, that repentance would happen, that a turning to you, a, 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 a turning away from sin and a sinful grip. Maybe some of the beholding we're doing lately is, is an over affection for good things maybe we're beholding a, a grandson or or beholding the the blessing of a job and, and 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 our joy is welled up in in those temporary things lord that ultimately any of that would cause us to behold and praise you that in all the busyness of all the lights of this time of season we would see and savor the light that is life both in general and in special illumination, the work that you do to save us, your grace. Oh, we praise you for your grace and for your truth, that your justice is met and your holiness upheld. If you give us a few more hours today, let us well up with worship. Let us speak of these things. Let us testify of Jesus to those you put in our path. And if you give us tomorrow, Lord, that we would be good stewards of it for your glory, for your fame. Oh, we love you, God. We, we celebrate the Christ Mass, the, 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 the celebration of the Messiah, the arrival. We sing Noel, and we worship you, the living God. In Jesus' name we pray.